Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 187 with Drew Boyd. We are talking creativity. It's been a while, but Professor Drew Boyd is bringing it. So you're going to learn one, the five patterns responsible for the majority of innovation. Two, why brainstorming is suboptimal. This one really disappointed me. And three, why it's better to think inside the box rather than outside the box. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep187. And I'd encourage you while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, sign up for some of our handy resources. One I'll highlight today would be the Gold Nugget email list. So if you're ever listening to the show while running or driving or commuting and you think, oh, that's great, I should write that down. But alas, you can't put pen to paper, you're indisposed. The Gold Nugget email list will send those notes right to your inbox each morning that a new guest comes live. So it's pretty handy that way. You can sign up at awesomeatyourjob.com or simply right here, right now from your smartphone. If you text NUG, that's N-U-G, to 444-999, you'll get that. So that's gold nuggets, NUG short for nuggets. Text NUG to 444-999 and you'll sign up that way. Now here's Drew's story. Drew Boyd is a global leader in creativity and innovation, international public speaker, award-winning author and innovation blogger, and professor at the University of Cincinnati. He teaches teams, businesses, and governments how to solve tough problems to create a culture of innovation and a flowing pipeline. Drew reframes the innovation process in a way that makes people more creative. Now here's Drew. Drew, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. It's great to be here. Oh, well, I'm so looking forward to this. And I wanted to ask for starters just to really put you on the spot. You know, since you've worked with a lot of folks on innovation and are present in many ideation sessions, I'm imagining you've heard some wild ideas in your day. Could you share with us one or two that are just outrageous and continue to make you kind of giggle when you think about it? Oh, you mean like actual ideas that people thought were very serious ideas? <laughs> well, they could yeah. have thought that they were serious or they could have known yeah. that they were ridiculous on the way to something good. But I just got to imagine that you've heard some things in your day that uh, would just be knee slappers. Okay, so uh, the one that comes to mind, I still laugh about. It's 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 not a crazy idea at all, but it comes out of the mouth of a, of a third grader. And that's the, the reason I love it so much. And when I taught him how to innovate using a systematic, approach. He created an umbrella that has a handle on the, the, the normal place you'd have an umbrella handle and then another handle on the spike. Okay. So you have two handles. And I looked at this kid, his name was Sam. I said, Sam, why the heck would you want a, an umbrella with a handle here and a handle on the spike? And he looked at me and his eyes got real bright and he said, Oh, oh Mr. Boyd, I know exactly why. He said, if the, the umbrella's up and the wind blows it out. All you do is just turn it around, grab the other handle, and you're ready to go. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, it's, it, was, it was one of my crowning moments. It was really a funny thing to see this kid learn how to innovate and actually came up with that, that idea on the spot. It's not a bad idea at all. It's just it's, it's uh, cute and funny and naive, but, uh, but still innovative, no doubt about it. 
Oh, certainly. And I guess if you've ever been in that spot where your umbrella is in fact blown upside down or concave convex, I always get those mixed up. It flips around the bad way. (laughs) Then yeah, you might want that extra handle. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. Well, so I understand that there is a bit of a story, your own lived experience that underlies your method. Could you maybe walk us through that narrative for starters? Yeah, absolutely. So what what's um, interesting about creativity, Pete, is that most people think that it's some, some special gift that you have to have. And I uh, preached just the opposite, that innovation and creativity is a skill uh, that you can learn like any other skill, whether it be in business or in your personal life. And that takes people by surprise because they've had this notion all their life. They've been told all their life that they're not creative, that you have to have special gifts, and that just isn't true. And so what uh, what I teach is based on the book that I co-authored with my uh, colleague, Dr. Jacob Goldenberg. The, the secret to, to creativity is based in patterns. And here's the story. For thousands of years, everyday inventors, innovators, have used patterns in their invention, usually without even realizing it. Those patterns are now embedded into the products and services you see around you every day. I want you to think of the patterns as the DNA of a product or service. So imagine if you had a way to extract that pattern and reapply it to anything you wanted to innovate whether it's a product like an umbrella or a service or a business model or an organization. As it turns out, based on my co-author's research, the majority of innovative products in the world can be explained by just five patterns. Five patterns. Oh, that's, that's it. intriguing. <laughs> yeah. And, all right. Yeah, it's very intriguing. And what's true is you don't really have to master all five. I teach my, my graduate students and my uh, corporate clients all the time that just mastering one or two of these in your organization is going to instantly boost your creative potential. Okay, well, you got me so intrigued and well, we must yeah. dig into these five patterns, but I got to hear this from you and I don't know where else to park it. So apologies if this is awkward, but you also mentioned that, you know, creativity is not just, you know, cool and fun in terms of advancing your career and kind of having a better time at work and making a bigger impact. But you said there's actually some compelling research, like in terms of being more creative can reduce your mortality risk. Can you give us some of that quick why foundation before we jump into the patterns? Absolutely. So I've, I've, I've uh, read this research recently that um, what I think it's based on this notion that people are predisposed to want to invent. It's, it's survival, right? We have to solve problems all the time. And what, uh, what, what frustrates a lot of time, people a lot of times is they just don't have a lot of times the cognitive ability, right? They can solve basic problems, but they haven't been trained on how to solve more, you know, more advanced problems. And so this fascinating research shows that people who have learned and make an effort to be more creative uh, live a happier life. They, they, they're more, more fulfilled. They're able to solve routine as well as complex problems put in front of them every day at work, at home, and, and everywhere else. And so it, make, it makes sense, right? It seems to reduce the stress. It, it ups and amps up your enjoyment. And I, I can vouch for this anytime I teach creativity to my students or, or uh, corporate clients and whatnot. I, I find this, this uh, common theme to all of them. Somebody comes up with a great idea and you should just look and see 
the look on their face, the look in their eyes. They get this big smile and this big green, and then they're the this they feel this sudden glory of coming up with a great idea. It it it's a very fulfilling thing. Uh, and so I think that is probably the genesis of this research and the, the you know the explanation behind it, why people would probably live longer if they could only learn how to be more creative. All right. Yes. Okay. I'm sold. And I know that feeling. And sometimes you're just so excited. Like you just, you don't want to be rude, but it's like, when is that other person going to stop talking? (laughs) So you can say it to the world before it escapes. So understood. All right. So have more fun, make a bigger impact, live longer. We're sold. So what are these five patterns? So the five patterns, let me tell you what they are are first. and, And then I'll tell you the, the secret to using the patterns. That's that's also very important. Uh, the patterns, now they may sound mathematical in terms of their name, but they're not really. Let me, let me give an example. So one of the patterns is called subtraction. Subtraction is removing something, some core element that at first you thought was essential. So you think back to the uh, to the Walkman, the Sony Walkman, which had the recording function and the speakers removed, right? Completely counterintuitive. And that product sold over 200 million units and completely transformed the way music is consumed today. Subtraction. Another pattern is called task unification. Uh, Many innovative products have had a component of it assigned an additional job. The component has its original job and now it has some additional job. A good example of that is if you think about the in your rear window of your car, you'll see small wires going through it. And Pete, if I asked you what that is, you'd probably say that that's my uh, uh, rear window defogger or defroster. Well, yeah, in Chicago, you got to melt that ice down. Sure. That's what it's for. Absolutely. Guess what else it is on many cars? It's also the antenna. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so the, the wires have the additional jobs, very innovative. And, and many, many uh, products have this, the, this uh, aspect as well. Another pattern is called division. Division is when you take the product or a component of of it and divide it either physically or functionally and then rearrange it somewhere back into the system. So this is a a pattern you'll see a lot in process innovation. So think about where you print out your boarding pass today versus where you used to print it out in the old days. So of course the airlines have done, believe it or not, a lot of innovation on check-in processes. So have car rental firms, right? They've done a lot on check-in process innovation. Uh, but it's also highly prevalent in uh, products and services. So take something like a straw, uh, a regular straw that has uh, flavor inside of it, right? So the flavor from the drink has been taken out and put inside the straw, and you only get that flavor as you consume and, and, and bring the beverage up through the straw. Pretty creative. Well, so the division then, just to make sure I'm clear, we call it division because when you say check-in, well, I started thinking, well, one, about my run-ins with rental car agents, but two, when it comes <laughs> to, I thought of a division like, oh, I could check in online by putting a boarding pass or on my phone or at the kiosk or to an agent. And that's what I thought about division. The checking in is divided amongst different ways. Or Are we thinking about it the same way? What do you mean by division there? You're exactly right. So in process innovation, imagine the traditional steps of the process the way it used to be, right? You would go to an airport, you would go to the counter, they would give you a boarding pass. And now that step, think of it, has been divided out and placed in a different point in time and a different location. Maybe a a simpler one to conceptualize is a drone, 
right? A drone has had a very important component divided out and placed somewhere else. That component, of course, is the pilot. So that's a classic example of the division technique. It's to, or here's an even simpler one. A remote control for your TV is an example of the division pattern. The controls of the TV have been divided off and placed in the this thing called a remote that sits in your hand. Classic division, very prevalent pattern like, like the other ones too. All right. A fourth pattern is called uh, multiplication. This is where you take a component, you create a copy of it, but change it in some qualitative way. And this is the umbrella example where young Sam took the handle, made a copy of it, but changed its location to be up on the spike of the umbrella. But you see it in other places too. So for example, um, bifocal glasses. Bifocals, of course, have the main lens, but now they have a copy of the lens that is down lower at a different refract, uh, different power so that you can read um, fine print and things like that. A great example of multiplication. Or like the iPhone camera, we got multiple cameras, which make it easier to, I guess, FaceTime talk as well as take photos from different angles or vantage points. And I think they even do stuff synergistically together now, if I'm not mistaken. I don't actually know. So Pete, you would do very well on my final exam for my innovation class because I one of the things I have students do is take a, a smartphone, an iPhone, and find examples of all five patterns. And it's kind of a contest who can find the most patterns in an iPhone. <laughs> There's plenty of them to choose from. And you just hit on a great example of the multiplication technique. In fact, cameras through the ages, the world of photography is based on multiplication. Right, you're duplicating an image and reimagining it on a different format on a piece of paper. Uh, but cameras have dual uh, flashes. Now, the, the the double flash of a camera reduces red eye. I'm sure you've seen mm. how a camera will flash once, yeah. and that's 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 actually to close your pupil before the second flash uh, jumps out of you to light you up. And that that simple act reduces the occurrence of red eye in pictures. And then the the final pattern, Pete, is called attribute dependency. Now, this one is unique. This one probably accounts for the majority of innovative products and services. The other four are very powerful too, but this one is the, the mother of all in, invention patterns, so to speak. The way this works is as follows. Attribute dependency is taking two attributes, one of the product and one of its environment, and creating a correlation or a dependency between them. So in other words, as one thing changes, another thing changes. I want you to think about transition sunglasses, for example, All right? You know this product? Right, so as the sun light changes, the lens changes to mask it, to make it darker. Exactly right. As the brightness of the sun increases, the darkness of the lens increases. A classic attribute dependency. Or another one, uh, the windshield wipers of your car. Um, many cars now have a feature where the windshield wiper will slow down or speed up depending on... Just how intense the rain is. Exactly. Attribute dependency. Actually, I didn't know that. That's really cool. I, I'm so backwards. My last car was so long ago. So I'll do it automatically. I don't have to adjust it in terms of exactly. low, medium, high. That's cool. Yep. And so what what these patterns do for you now is they give you a way to to essentially channel your ideation for you. They they guide your thinking. 
And essentially, if you let your brain follow and apply these patterns correctly, you produce an idea that you would not have produced on your own. Now, there's a secret, though. There's, a, there's an important concept that I have to explain to use these patterns. And let me go through that with you. Most people think the way you invent a new product or service is that you start with a well-formed problem, something that may come out of voice of the customer research, for example. You start with a problem and then you innovate to some solution into that problem, right? From the problem to the solution. Okay. What if I told you you could turn that around 180 degrees? That in fact, you can start with a solution to a problem, so a solution, and then work backwards to the problem that it solves. Uh, it turns out that humans are actually better at that than the other way around. Let me see if I can prove it to you. Pete, I want you and your listeners to imagine that I'm holding in my hand a baby's milk bottle, okay? And this baby's milk bottle changes color when the temperature of the milk changes. Now, Pete, quickly tell me, why do you think that would be beneficial? Well, you can quickly see that your milk is not, you know, too hot to scald the baby. Exactly. And any audience anywhere in the world immediately gets that. But Pete, what if I had said to you instead, okay, folks, we need to come up with a way on how not to burn a baby with milk that's too hot. How long would it take you and your listeners to come up with a color-changing milk bottle? Oh, yeah. Well, I imagine I would come up with a bunch of stuff which would be pretty clunky. Who knows if I would land on that one in the mix or not. And even if you did, you're going to do it much later, take a much longer time. Truthfully, it, it, you may never land on it. And so I want you to see, you, you had the ability to start with this configuration, color-changing milk bottle, this, this hypothetical solution, and immediately connect it back to a benefit. Much faster than when I said, hey, Pete, here's the problem. Come up with a solution to it now. My lean startup instincts are screaming right now, so I got to pay heed to them and bring this up. I think that sometimes, and I've made this mistake, and I've mentioned it on the show before, you've got a solution, you realize the problem it solves, and then you overestimate the extent to which anybody really has that problem intensely enough to pay you money for your solution. And then it's a disappointment in terms of the results and not hitting product market fit. So I just got to throw that out there and say, how do we contend with that issue? So no, no question that's important. However, that is uh, what I call the, the testing phase, okay. right? The, the, the viability phase. It, but it still starts with the idea. You've got to have ideas, novel ideas to go out and test in the marketplace. And so I, I certainly agree with you. Uh, what, what we do when we work with, with with uh, groups, whether students or clients, is put some of these ideas to sort. Let's let's call it a uh, a back of the envelope um, or a quick check in. How viable really is this? Is it does it have some benefit? Is there a potential market? Is there a potential user? So, in the case of the color changing milk bottle, the people in the room would probably go, "Yeah, you know, we're, moms have this problem. They worry about their kids." Uh, all the time, ha having um, milk that's too hot or being burned. 
And so we also put it to a technology uh, or implementation filter. It doesn't make sense to have a great idea, but some everybody in the room is sort of shaking their head. They know that it's just not feasible from a materials point of view or maybe a regulatory point of view. So I, I'm a big believer in weeding out the the, the you know the, the the non-viable ideas right off the bat. And you know what happens? Uh, I, I have some bad news for your your readers. Please don't shoot the your listeners. Please don't shoot the messenger here. But brainstorming doesn't work. <laughs> and uh, brainstorming is a tool that's been around some 60 years now, and there is a ton of research, uh, so much research now that the the research community doesn't even debate it anymore, whether brainstorming doesn't work. It doesn't work because what brainstorming does, it sends your mind out on this vast, unconstrained space where the mind suffers idea chaos or idea anarchy. And And what happens in brainstorming sessions, of which I've been through many, somebody will come up with a wacky idea, but Everybody's been told to withhold judgment. And so the, the people get excited about the idea, but there might be one person in their room that knows deep in their heart that this idea will never see the light of day. It's just not, not going to happen. But they don't say anything in the room because they don't want to be the, the, the naysayer. And uh, what happens, these ideas then eventually get killed, right? They're not viable. Uh, the organization spends a lot of time and energy and frustration weeding these ideas out. When I'm with you, it makes much more sense to put these ideas to a, an early test, so just a reasonableness test so you don't waste a lot of time. Now, when you say brainstorming doesn't work, I understand what you're saying with regard to it's risky business to not have a testing filtering phase kind of early-ish on your ideas but I guess I want to make sure I'm hearing your sentence appropriately. I mean, I'm thinking that it is absolutely, in my experience, the case that if you have a group of folks together with the goal of generating numerous ideas, you will, in fact, generate numerous ideas as a result yeah. of other people being present and vibing off of one another and building off of yeah. one another and, and withholding judgment. So that's not what you mean by brainstorming doesn't work. Like that does happen. Yeah, it's, here's what it means. Brainstorming was invented in the late 40s by a man named Alex Osborne. And boy, was it popular, right? This idea of people in a small group, you know, six to eight people generating ideas. And uh, the the, the academic community jumped on the, the brainstorming bandwagon too, and they started to study it to see what would optimize it. And the first of these was a researcher named Taylor from Yale. And what Taylor did was a, a straightforward study. What he did is he took a group of, say, eight people that would brainstorm on a, on a task versus eight randomly selected individuals brainstorming on their own individually on a, uh, the same task. Okay. And then fair fight, right? Side by side comparison. Uh, and what do you think happened in the very first clinical trial? Well, the control group, the eight individuals in the aggregate outperformed the brainstorming group, producing 80% more ideas and better ideas. Mm. Now, this upset a lot of people and a lot of other researchers rushed in to discredit Taylor. Uh, and what's true is that for the last 50 years, there is there is uh, tons of research that validate this idea that brainstorming is no more effective. In fact, that it's actually less effective than ideating on your own. 
Now, brainstorming has a place every so often when you just want a quick check in or, you know, team building and things like that. But as a as a rigorous uh, corporate innovation method, I encourage people to to move on to things that have more eff- efficacy and science behind them. Oh, no, that's really interesting, Drew. In a way, that's a bit disappointing to me, the extrovert who loves brainstorming. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it it is fun. The research showed that people enjoy the brainstorming experience very much, Uh more so than sitting individually. But the results just don't bear out. And, And here's another quick example of this research. One of the things that Osborne believed uh, is is this first rule of brainstorming, no bad ideas, right? Deferred judgment. And it seemed to make sense. It seemed to make sense that if you separate the generation of the idea from the judgment of the idea, that people will feel more free to give their ideas, right? It, you know, it makes, seems to make sense. But what's what the studies show is just the opposite happens. Here's Here's what I mean. Imagine you're in a in a uh, a group brainstorming setting, and you've been asked now to share an idea, but nobody can judge you. Now you don't know where your naysayers are. Now you don't know what people are thinking. And what humans naturally do is they feel this tension to to offer only safe ideas that are going to be acceptable by the group. In other words, it exactly defeats the notion of coming up with wild ideas. And so two types of ideas get produced in brainstorming sessions, the really wild, exotic, um, wacky ideas that everybody knows you're not going to take seriously, or the safer ideas where you're more concerned about how the group feels about you. You're more worried about your status in the group, so to speak. And and this this is just one of numerous reasons why brainstorming has been shown to be ineffective. And Pete, like you, I was pretty upset when I read this <laughs> reason because I, I had been trained in brainstorming and um, I, I kept thinking to myself, good grief, why does the corporate world continue to use this? And I think it's simply uh, people just don't know about this research. Well, and I'm wondering, Drew, if, you know, maybe this is just my last ditch grasp at <laughs> brainstorming <laughs> life. But I'm wondering if you could get the best of both worlds in the sense that everyone does their individual ideation and then the group comes together and says, hey, look at this mother load of ideas. Hey, tell me, is that sparking some new stuff for you guys? So there have been attempts to do that kind of uh, permutation on brainstorming and there've been a lot of variations um, brain writing, brain zooming, all these different uh, crazy named ideas. And the only flaw that I see in them continues to th- be this idea that of this. When you put the human mind in an unconstrained condition, it, it suffers. It's, it goes through idea chaos. Uh, and what, what the research is clear about, all the researchers agree that you need to put constraints around the mind you talk about how to be awesome at work, right? Well, this is one way to do it. Put constraints around you where most people think constraints are a barrier to creativity. Guess what? Constraints are actually a necessary condition for creativity to occur. And the mind works much better, much tighter when it's when it's bounded. It's, it's able to come up with the idea. And essentially, that's what these patterns do, Pete. These patterns force people to be very tight and constrained in their thinking, very formulaic and systematic. And I've had people in workshops look at me as I'm facilitating the way they think 
and their eyes get real bright, kind of like little Sam. And they'll look at me and say, oh, my God, I feel so free to come up with ideas. And it's it's not because they're thinking outside the box, just the opposite. It's they're thinking inside the box. Mm-hmm. And hence the title there of your work. So I'm wondering then, so with the group ideation there, are you saying that it can still be done in a group setting so long as there are some constraints or a challenge to work with those principles? Yeah, I certainly would say that's the case. In other words, if I were going into a group session with some colleagues and uh, we weren't going to use the, the 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 five tools, but just just work together on a problem, the first thing I would do very very uh, clearly is define the constraints around the problem uh, because it doesn't make sense to generate ideas that violate the constraints. Okay. Uh, and, and so when I work with a new client, one of the first questions I'll ask them is, tell me what the constraints are. And I occasionally I'll have a client say to me, no, Drew, we don't want any constraints. We're, we want to be open to all possibilities. And you know what I say to them? No constraints, no project. Think about it. I don't want to go in and fail, and I know I'll succeed if I get the client to put the constraints around the problem that that generate this the the creative resources in people's minds. So I know it's counterintuitive. I I uh, I'm, I, I remember when a client called me once. There was head of a large division, and he was about to have a a uh, town hall meeting the next day, like 600 people, right? Big big meeting, and he said to me. Drew, here's what I want to say to my team tomorrow. What do you think? He said, imagine you next year, you had all the resources and time and money you wanted. What would you do to produce growth? And he says, Drew, what do you think? What do you, what do you think? And I said, no, <laughs> that's not what I want you to say at all. What I want you to say is this. Imagine next year you have no money, no time, no additional headcount. Now what would you do to produce results in growth. So which approach do you think is going to produce more novel ideas? Well, clearly the, 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 the latter, right? It's going to force people to be more creative when they work in constrained environments than when they work in unconstrained environments. Okay. Okay. I hear you. And I think we talked <laughs> to uh, Scott Sonnenshine had some similar perspectives on that, talking about the constraints and their value. Yeah. And so I'm wondering now... In the realm of constraints, I guess you have the universe of zero constraints and then max constraints of which you've sort of laid out there. What about moderate constraints? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's a it's – a, it's a, what you're describing is a, a, another cognitive sort of skill or behavior. Again, you talk about being awesome at work. I, I call this skill uh, zooming in and zooming out. And I used to have my colleagues at J&J come to me all the time and they would say, you know, Drew, how do we get our young people to be more effective at this? You know, just the more senior people just seem to know how to get high up above the problem and then zoom right back down on the ground and and be able to work through the mechanics. And so we teach this as part of this method, this idea of zooming out and zooming in. So let me give you a, a couple examples. Imagine you worked for a company like Boeing. And Boeing makes a lot of things. One of them is commercial aircraft. Now, Boeing likes to in, innovate their commercial aircraft. And so one of the constraints would be we would say you can only come up with innovations within the cabin of the aircraft. And so we think about all the different things in a cabin like seats, okay. like wind 
windows, like flight attendants, passengers, overhead compartments, things like that. But now to get more creative, we say now you can only invent new ideas dealing with the seats. Mm-hmm. In other words, we zoom right down on top of the seats and force the team to only innovate in that space. And and very tight constraints, sure enough, they come up with you know very clever ideas. But we can take it further. We yes. can zoom out. The tray. Oh, you're zooming out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, let's do the tray. How could I make it hold a phone or an iPad? Uh, <laughs> well, no. So the, the closer down you zoom, the more creative you're going to get. Yeah. No doubt about it. And I'll... I'll I'll give you another quick story here uh, that demonstrates this. I had a, a pharmaceutical client that was trying to launch a new drug in China. Okay, and uh, a lot at stake. You know, big market, very important drug. It was a diabetes drug, and the team was just struggling. And they said, Drew, we just we just can't get our head around this. And I knew right away it was a problem with this idea of, of constraints of zooming in and zooming out. And so here's what I, I said to the team leader. It was a guy named Wei Li. I said, Wei Li, let's not look at China. Let's pick one city in China. And he said, Shanghai. And I said, okay, well, that's 25 million people. That's still pretty big. I said, let's think of a smaller city, maybe a couple million people within, let's say, 300 kilometers of Shanghai. And he named some city. And I said, okay, now let's go to one uh, suburb of this city with maybe 30,000 people. He said, okay. He's kind of looking at me, scratching his head. And I said, now, Waylee, let's look at just one neighborhood in that little suburb. Now let's look at one street on that neighborhood. Now let's look at one home on that street. Now I said to Waylee and his team, I said, now I want you to imagine one man in that home with age 50 with type 2 diabetes. And I said, team, look, if you can't figure out how to get your drug from where it's made into that man's body, that just that one man every day at the right dose, I said, you can forget about China. But if you can figure out it just for the one man, all the logistics and shipping and packaging and supply chain and duties and customs and refrigeration and needle disposal, you know, all the things that have to happen just for one, well, then you zoom out and you go to another house. And then you zoom out and you go to another street and you zoom out and you zoom out. You get it? And mm-hmm. by before you, you know it, you have built from within, you know, the very tightly constrained one home, one man scenario. And you build out from within up to the broader market. And that that's what gave them the breakthrough. It was a real breakthrough for me, too, because it just reinforced this this notion of constraints and thinking inside the box and the, the, the skill of zooming in and zooming out. Okay. So what I'm hearing then is that you want to have some constraints and you want to keep kind of flexing it in terms of, you know, zoomed in, many constraints, zoomed out, fewer constraints, and you're going to be getting different layers of goodness at each iteration. Exactly. With, With this one caveat, all the team members at any point in time have to be on the same level. Right. So you can't be innovating on uh, uh, trays while I'm working on uh, cockpits of an aircraft, right? So we have to be on the same page on that, and 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 the, and then that's, you get exactly different layers of ideation, as you as you pointed out. Well, and I'd love to maybe tackle a different example right quick. I just got an email today from a listener who said she was trying to figure out the question: When do I know it's time to leave my job? And so I thought, well, that is a tricky one. And, and I've done a lot of thinking and 
kind of work on that. And so you've had many great examples associated with products and sort of services and processes and delivery mechanisms. So I'm wondering when you've got a question that doesn't fit as neatly into either of those categories, how do we make the connection so that we can put these good tools to work on it? Good. So it recalls a story when I was at Johnson & Johnson of, a, of one of my team members, the lady that came to me and she, you know, she just was exasperated. She just said, you know, I've been here a long time and, and um, I love my work, but I'm just, you know, I need something new. I just don't know what direction to go in. Uh, kind of like your your listener, right? Do, when do I when do I move on? And at, I at the time I I was still learning this method and practicing with it and experimenting, and I decided to experiment with her on this uh, very scenario. And so I I decided to use the subtraction technique. You remember that one where you essentially take away some essential component? Yeah. So here here's the way it worked. I said to her, her name was Phyllis. I said, Phyllis. Let's list out the components of your life. And so we got up on my whiteboard and we made a list of the aspects of her life, her her family, her spouse, her um, neighbors, her friends, her job, her education, her hobbies, her financial situation. All, we listed it all out, right? All the different components of her life. And then uh, I looked at her and I made her pick a number randomly. She, she was board. She had to pick a component numbered randomly. Uh, and I'll tell you why I did that later. But so she, she would blurt out a number like number five. Okay. So, uh, you have no, um, no, no children. Now it, I know it's a sad thing to conceptualize, but, but here's what I said to her. I said, okay, Phyllis, now imagine you have everything else in your life. You just have no children. What would you do instead? How would you, where would you take your life? What would you do uh, differently, would you travel more? Would you uh, invest differently? Would you go back to school? What would you do differently if you didn't have children? And then we did it, and she came up with a lot of interesting ideas. She said, "Well, you know, I would. I've always wanted to write a book, and da 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 da." And then I said, "Okay, let's pick something else." And she said, "Okay, I don't have. Um, I don't have the same educational background that I have." And I. I said to her, okay, great. So uh, now you have all the other components, just not this one component. Now what would you do differently in your life? And and through this short exercise, it was only 30 minutes, she started to see much more possibility in her life that she wasn't considering. And she was suffering from a condition that we all have. It's a condition called fixedness. Fixedness is this cognitive bias that makes it hard for us to imagine other possibilities than what we know. And by using this cognitive tool, this, this subtraction technique, she was able to see new possibilities by having me systematically remove one at a time. Not that we're going to you know, do that for real. We're not going to get rid of her children, for God's <laughs> sakes. But, but, but as a mental exercise, right, it helped her see and reframe the problem. So to your listener, I would ask her to do the same thing. List out the components of her life. Um, but here's the key. She can't go back and look at the list. She has to kind of turn around and avert her eyes and then randomly pick something. Otherwise, she'll succumb to fixing this. Like, oh, I don't want to give that up. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give that. Exactly. I don't want to give my jewelry up. I don't want to give this, you know, my car up, right? And and that's why I do it randomly. And, and it's you want to take away something that's provocative 
to, to make you in a new constrained way see a possibility that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And uh, it worked for her. I, I, I'm going to guess it, it might work for your listener as well. Oh, Drew, I love that kind of final note because it seemed like you keep talking about, you know, go ahead and pick up constraints. And I'm thinking, oh, that sounds so boring. And, you know, and, <laughs> and like that's tying me down. But then effectively, the constraint you were offering, imagine not every possibility, but possibilities directly popping up as a result of this thing being subtracted. In a way, it's a constraint, but it's also the relief of a specific right. constraint. So it's like uh, right. we're having our cake and eating it too. It does. It, it removes something that um, relieves you of it, even if it seems essential. But what it does is it reframes the, your life. It reframes the problem for you to see new problems. It breaks fixedness. And we, and we can't get rid of fixedness. We, we all have it, but we need a cognitive tool like these five tools if we're going to be more creative in the workplace and other parts of our life. All right. Well, Drew, thank you. This is so good. Tell me anything else you want to mention before we rapid fire or hear about some of your favorite things. No, it's, uh, it's been great to talk to you. It's, it's, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this. It really does make people better off when they feel encouraged and motivated when they know they can be creative by learning a straightforward method. Mm, absolutely. All right. So now how about a favorite quote, Seth, that you find inspiring? Could the greatest invention of all be a method of invention? Oh. Heavy. <laughs> it's pretty heavy. And I, I really believe in that one because I think this method is just that. It's an invention. It's a, it's, it's, it's a method of invention that can really, really affect any part of a person's life. Excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Well, a favorite book. Uh, I am just starting a new book. I've just received it from a colleague of mine. It's called Raising Thinkers, and it's preparing your child for the journey of life. It's written by a lady named Tremaine Dupreeze. She's based in the United Kingdom in London, and I helped her with some of the content for this book, and I'm really excited to read it. Honestly, I haven't read it yet, but uh, that's on my, uh, my next reading list. So uh, I love books that tackle cognitive skills, especially as it applies to our young people, because we've got to prepare the next generation for this crazy world we live in. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite tool? A favorite tool. Okay, that's, uh, that's tricky. So I, um, I make guitars. I'm an acoustic mm. guitar maker in addition to the other things I do, teach and speak and whatnot. And so I have to, t I have to tell you, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in love with my, um, my chisels. I know that's crazy, but these chisels are not just any old chisels. They're made specially in Maine, and they, they um, are just amazing what they can do in the, in the right hands. And uh, so, yeah, that's my favorite tool. I know that may not have been what you're oh, looking for. I love for, it. But... No, thank you. <laughs> and how about a favorite habit? Yeah, favorite habit. Uh, well, I, you know, one of the things I, I um, am always keen on is something I learned from one of my professor colleagues at the University of Cincinnati. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a condition that he has researched called omission neglect. We have this tendency to, to ob not take into account things that are missing in our life. We overweigh things that are available to us. And so I've, I've gotten just, I'm now in this, this habit of, of um, being always cognizant of omission neglect. So something is missing from any situation you're facing. In fact, we're starting a new book about this. 
And so I'm trying to really build this, this awareness, this sensitivity to missing information in my life. Okay. Thank you. And tell me, is there a particular nugget that you share in your teaching or speaking or writings that seems to really connect with folks, get Kindle book highlighted, retweeted, note taken, heads nodding? Uh, uh, something that really resonates. I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love to, to look at people uh, and I, I, but here's what I say to people. I, I look into the eyes of so many corporate practitioners and, and students and friends and neighbors and, you know, everybody's looking for their breakout moment, right? You know, so Pete, if I were with you right now, I'd, I would say, dude, what are you waiting for? Let's let <laughs> life is short. Make your breakout move. And, and I find that people are reluctant to take risk. Uh, and I, I, I pushed them. I said, look, you're skilled, you're smart, you're ambitious. Um, what are you waiting for? Go out and, 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 and claim, stake your claim, play big, right? Uh, make the world a better place. And, and, and sometimes people just need a little swift kick in the butt to, to help them think that way. And that, I think that's an important thing to remind people. Okay, thank you. And Drew, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, www.drewboyd.com. All right, perfect. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? A final challenge is uh, is this. You know, just just remember, you're, you you really your job is not to be the smartest person in the room, right? It's really to go out and and collaborate and nurture and build alliances with people. That's what's going to make you awesome. You're awesome too, but boy, when you put the power of of, of uh, awesome people around you, you, you really do amp up your game and, and stand the chance to make the world a better place. Okay. Well, Drew, thank you. This has been such a treat. I think that I will be thinking very differently in the months and years to come. So right. such a blessing. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. I don't know about you, but I was pretty disappointed to learn about the brainstorming data and studies that came to bear. So I might still make a case for the esprit de corps or camaraderie or energy factor that comes about for that. But I guess I cannot argue with the hard hitting data that counts up those ideas. I would imagine, though, if everyone had their individual pieces and then you came together, there could be some good sparking. So. That's the skinny on brainstorming and I bring it to you straight instead of editing out the parts that disappointed me, you know, let the data show what they show and the research lead where it naturally leads so that you can optimize your ideation sessions and more. Again, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we referenced here, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep187. I'd also encourage you to push subscribe. If you have not already, you'll hear from our next guest. If you do so without risk of missing it, it's Justin Locke. He is giving some further counterintuitive wisdom about generating smart ideas. He's talking about the surprising wisdom and power of applied stupidity. So I hope to catch you there in peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 